How's it going, family? Welcome to the 80th episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, a health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to welcome my good friend and mentor, Dr. Richard Isaacson, a neurologist and the director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian in New York City. Over the course of the next hour and 10 minutes, we're going to discuss strategies for staving off Alzheimer's disease and other forms of cognitive impairment. What sets Dr. Isaacson apart, aside from the fact that he's one of the very few neurologists who specializes in prevention, he's also in the trenches publishing scientifically rigorous studies that are showing us that our cognitive destiny may be a choice that we make with our diets and lifestyles. We're going to talk specifically about the results of his new study published last month in Alzheimer's and Dementia, the Journal of the Alzheimer's Association, which found that a personalized intervention not only stopped cognitive decline in people at risk for Alzheimer's disease, but actually increased their memory and thinking skills within 18 months. We discuss exercise, sleep, diet, and we also talk about the APOE4 allele, which one in four people carry, imparting anywhere between a two and 14-fold increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. But fear not, Dr. Isaacson isn't afraid of it, and neither should you be. Needless to say, I am incredibly passionate about this topic, and I love Dr. Isaacson's work. And when I met him about eight years ago now, I uh, I knew then that, I, that part of my life's mission was to help amplify the work that he was doing. So I'm grateful to get to now call him a friend and a colleague, and I am uh, elated for you to um, have the opportunity to listen in on our conversation. So get ready to have your mind blown, and please share this episode with anybody who you think could benefit from it. Before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show. This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Four Sigmatic, who make a line of medicinal mushroom-infused coffees and elixirs. I uh, have just recently begun reintegrating coffee into my um, into my life. If you guys have been following, you know that I have gone the past month and a half without um, any coffee except for maybe a small cup here and there. Probably a total of three times over the past month and a half I've consumed coffee um, all in a, in a pre-workout um, sort of context. But uh, I love Four Sigmatic because they make delicious organic coffees and coffee-free elixirs uh, with mushrooms like chaga, reishi, cordyceps, and lion's mane. Each one has been purported to possess adaptogenic properties, helping your body better cope with stress. I've heard adaptogens described as sort of like vaccines against stress. So whether you're looking for the increase in focus that many people say that they get from the lion's mane mushroom or the energy boost that many people say that they get from cordyceps or the calming effect imparted by reishi mushrooms, they pretty much have something for everyone. So if you want to try anything that Four Sigmatic has to offer, all you got to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save 15% off of everything in their online store. Again, that is foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off and saving money is good, baby. Now we're just seconds away from my chat with Dr. Richard Isaacson. Please take a moment before we get started um, or while you're listening to leave a rating and review for this show on iTunes. I read every single rating. Uh, or review rather, um, like this one from Ryantology, who wrote, I'm thoroughly convinced that Max is either one, an alien, or two, an advanced AI robot escaped from Westworld, or three, a set of twins pretending to be one person. It's not humanly possible to be both so smart, informed, and kind. Max is one of the most generous people I've ever encountered in engaging with his fans, and is truly dedicated to his followers on all of his media platforms. Somehow he finds time to recruit amazing guests, prepare for his interviews, and engage with literally every 
comment ever. A complete opposite approach to some podcast celebrities who advocate not wasting your time on commentators. Congratulations, Max's mom. You raised a good one. Well, thank you, Ryantology, for giving a shout out to my mom. That means a lot to me. And thank you for picking up what I'm putting down. I truly do love you guys. And I'm trying to bring the best content to you week after week. And this episode with Dr. Isaacson is going to be no exception to that. If you couldn't tell, I do not care about celebrity. Um, I do not care about notoriety or fame. When it comes to picking my my podcast guests, all I want to do is bring on people who are going to add value to your life. And that's it, baby. That's what the genius life is all about. So thank you so much, Ryanology, for leaving that review. And to everybody who's ever uh, left a rating or a review, I really appreciate it. And if you haven't yet, what are you waiting for? Go do it. That would be really, really cool. And I might read your review um, on the show. So the other way that you can support The Genius Life is by going to maxlugavir.com and by joining my newsletter. You guys, I've got some very exciting projects coming up and I would love to be able to uh, email you about them. So all you gotta do is go to maxlugavir.com, leave your first and last name and your email address and we will be in touch. I promise not to be annoying or sell your address or spam you ever. You can opt out at any time, you have my word. And uh, just for signing up, I'm gonna send you a list of the 11 supplements that you could potentially use to boost your brain function. So right off the bat, you're gonna be getting serious value. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you there. All right, guys, without further ado, I'm excited to dive into this chat with Dr. Isaacson. I think you're gonna get a lot out of it. So um, strap on your seatbelts and let's rock. Dr. Isaacson, thank you so much for uh, being with me on The Genius Life. It's really terrific to be here, Max, thanks so much. People, I don't think, realize this, but you and I go way back. We're, we're friends offline. Um, uh, it started as a bit of a mentor-mentee relationship because I was such a huge fan of what you were doing over at Wild Cornell, and um, I signed up to become a patient, and uh, I've since learned a lot from you, and we've become colleagues of sorts. So I'm excited to, uh, to talk to you and to introduce my listeners to you. Right on. And you know, the saying goes, the student surpasses the teacher, and... Uh you know what, you're, you're doing pretty good yourself. So I think we've been learning from each other. Man, I, I appreciate that. So let's just talk about, before we get into the results of your new study, which I'm super um, excited to talk about, why don't we just give my listeners some context? You've had a very interesting career thus far, and you've really carved a path that I think uh, is unique in the field of, of neurology. You're a neurologist, you know, conventionally trained, but you focus on Alzheimer's prevention. And that's what drew me to your work initially. And I love seeing you evolve and continue to push the envelope and to really bring this topic into the fold because, you know, it's something that's super important to me. So how did you get started in all this? Yeah, so I'm I'm a neurologist by trade, and um, I kind of knew I was going to be a neurologist when I was little. Uh, my brother was actually in medical school and started his neurology training, uh, believe it or not, when I was in fifth grade. So um, I actually went on call with him, and I kind of got to see all the different things he was working on, and um, I think that was part of it. Um, and um, when I was in high school, uh, my uncle Bob was actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and. When I was in high school, I'd always planned to be a doctor. I was interested in neurology, but you know, didn't really have a, a subspecialty, not even close back then. Uh, but Uncle Bob was pretty important to me, and you know, like you, Max, you know, we've both been, um, you know, not, I mean, very personally affected by Alzheimer's, you know, like deeply. Um, I have four family members with the disease, and um, when my Uncle Bob was diagnosed, it was it was tricky because I was, um, just to be honest, I was. Uh, 
you know, pretty close with him. He he introduced my parents, number one. So if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. Um, and aside from introducing my parents, um, when I was three years old, um, I was actually at a, at a party at my uh, aunt's uh, house, and I actually fell into the pool. I actually drowned, went literally to the bottom of the pool. And my uncle Bob, who used to be in the Navy, actually jumped in and saved me while most of the family was actually inside. Uh, no one really saw that I wasn't even around. So uh, my uncle Bob was very important to me, I think because of both of these issues, we were always close. Um, and just to see the devastation, um, you know, he just, he became a shell of himself. He was the life of the party. He was, he was just the most like fun family member. He was, he was just this always smiling, always laughing, always positive. And when you see, you know, like you went through Max, I mean, when you see it, someone just, just, you know, become a shell of what they were, um, it's devastating. And I, I think that really kind of cemented my interest in, in the disease and the fact that like, you know, I went to this um, combined medical program where I did medical school and college um, all together in six years. So I'm 17 years old. I, I go to, you know, I'm starting med school. I put my white coat on and I'm whatever. And, and I'm all excited to learn about Alzheimer's and see what we can do for, for Uncle Bob. And, and there were no treatments back then. Hmm. And that's really, I think, what cemented my um, kind of uh, career commitment to we need to do something about this. It's, it's not okay that there's like literally nothing a person can do. So if you fast forward the clock, you know, I, I've, again, have several family members, a a family member, I I basically, um, you know, diagnosed at a wedding. They thought she was fine, having senior moments, blah, blah, blah. And, um, this was in 2007. And, you know, it literally took four years for her primary care doctor to, um, you know, make a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's. Um, so then a few years uh, after that, uh, you know, I was at a wedding and, and really diagnosed my, you know, cousin uh, also with Alzheimer's and her dad had Alzheimer's who I knew pretty well, also one of my great uncles. And, you know, it took her primary care doctor four years to actually give her a definitive diagnosis of, of dementia. And, you know, the symptoms to me were way apparent, um, you know, way before that. And it really just um, kind of changed my thinking, you know, why are doctors diagnosing dementia so late when people can't take care of themselves, you know, those senior moments, those things are real. Those are the earliest phases of Alzheimer's. And, you know, we now know that Alzheimer's disease starts in the brain 20 to 30 years before the first symptom of memory loss begins. And to me, um, I just feel like there's just no better time and really ample time uh, to intervene. And that's really been the focus of our work. That's amazing. So you started med school at the age of 17. You were like a Doogie Howser kind of character. Were you, yes, just, were you just always like, like a that. super high performer in school? <laughs> um, you know, not necessarily. Um, I was in high I guess I was in like gifted classes or whatever when I was younger, but no, I wasn't like at the super top of my class or anything. Um, in high school, I, I kind of hung out with the, the, the rough and tough kids and was in a rock band, uh, for a few years. So like my in ninth grade, my grades were, were, weren't great at all. Um, so I wasn't like, no, at the top of my class, I think I graduated like, I don't know, 36 out of 400 something. Um, but you know, I, I always did well enough. Um, but, uh, I was just committed. I was focused. I had my eye on the prize and there were 13. Um, combined medical programs at the time in the United States where you can do the the, the two together, uh, college and med school. And um, this was really the only program in 
the United States where you actually start med school from day one. Now, if, if your listeners are, are from, you know, around the world, um, you know, from South America, from Europe, from Asia, uh, that's normal. You do six or six years or sometimes seven years of med school with a year of social mandatory service at the end, like an internship. Um, but actually, the United States is, is, is unique in some ways by, um, you know, requiring a college degree um, and then a separate application to medical school. Wow, that's super interesting. Okay, so peop- so Alzheimer's disease begins in the brain 20 to 30 years, if not more, um, before the presentation of symptoms. So how do you then, I mean, how do you screen for people who are at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease? So I think, number one, it comes to not getting um, too excited and, um, you know, into the weeds with, you know, fancy tests. Um, I think a lot of people talk about all these advances in Alzheimer's, which, believe me, I'm, I'm like, super excited about, too. Um, but, you know, you don't need a, a PET scan or a fancy blood test or something else uh, in everybody um, to screen. I think I think what we're trying to do is trying to kind of go a little bit earlier on and, and just start simply. Um, talk to a person. Um, has someone noticed changes in their mood, uh, their sleep, uh, maybe some memory glitches that are, you know, not, um, you know, interfering in life, but is something slower, is something just a little different? Um, we start by taking a pretty comprehensive um, uh, history by talking to patients. Um, and, you know, this is not going to be definitive where we, we notice that something is wrong, but um, I, I don't even think that we need um, super fancy tests in a, in a lot of um, a lot of ways. The other aspect is um, cognitive testing. So um, we've developed a, a web platform. Actually, we call it a digital tool. It's mainly an educational tool. Uh, but in this um, online platform that you've actually helped us with, Max, um, we do cognitive assessments um, online. Um, so we can do um, memory tests. They kind of feel like games in a way, but we can do memory assessments online where we match faces and names and we do um, you know, word games and, and, and that sort of thing. And on the back end, from a research perspective, um, we can uh, hopefully, and I think what we're trying to prove is detect that someone has Alzheimer's-related changes in the brain before symptoms, and we can detect that using really sophisticated um, um, technology-based tests uh, using a, a computer. So these digital tests are key. Um, Max, you've, you've participated in two of our studies, and, and one. And I think I'm okay to talk about that. Do you yeah. give me permission? Okay. Sure. Okay. There's like all these laws and rules. I got to be careful <laughs> about what I say. Um, but one of the studies that we um, that we uh, just published, actually, that you were in also, uh, was we used uh, a digital biosensor. So we used a wrist strap. Uh, it's called the Whoop Strap. W H O OOP, and I have nothing to disclose. I'm not uh, don't have a commercial relationship with the company or anything like that. Uh, but the Whoop Strap is something that we've used um, in a scientific study. It was published a few weeks ago in the uh, Journal of the Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease. And what we actually found was that collecting biosensor information, just like uh, kind of like what Fitbit collects, but only in a more maybe sophisticated way, um, we used um, sleep measures and cardiovascular measures to predict how a person would function on a cognitive test in the office, um, um, you know, over, over a six-month period of time. So, you know, what we're trying to do is use um, innovative ways to reach as many people as possible. All that being said, um, yes, uh, we do a very comprehensive um, uh investigation workup and we we try to simplify it uh by um calling um um a b and c so the a b's and c's of alzheimer's prevention management um and we look at a anthropometrics that basically means body composition body fat and muscle mass we look at labs including cholesterol 
inflammation, metabolism, nutrition markers, as well as genetics. And then we do the C, the, those cognitive tests that I mentioned. And we take these um, three um, inputs of data and we basically can predict, in my opinion, um, and get a sense of is someone on the potential road to Alzheimer's disease even before symptoms. You know, some people may be on the metabolic road or the cholesterol road or the genetic road or they may have high body fat and, and, and as the belly size gets larger, the memory center in the brain gets smaller. So we, we, we look at all of these things together. We look at memory function. And while it's not entirely definitive, we can get a sense of what a person's risk is. And then not only that, but how to intervene. Now, most people would answer this question as, um, well, how do you determine if someone has Alzheimer's? Well, you do a, a brain scan and and and. and Sure, you can definitely do that. MRIs of the brain um, are simple-ish, a little expensive, not too bad. Um, but if you have shrinkage in the memory center of the brain, um, that could be predictive. And then the def more definitive test would be a PET scan that can actually look at amyloid levels. And amyloid is the pathologic protein that gets built up in a person's brain with Alzheimer's. And um, there are now tests that can do that too. That's amazing. Up until recently, fairly recently, amyloid could only be the presence of amyloid in the brain could only be confirmed upon autopsy. So you could, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can only really make the definitive diagnosis upon death. But now we can look into the brain and see amyloid burden, um, and so that's uh, super helpful. I actually had my brain scanned at the Karolinska Institute. So cool. Yeah. So jealous. <laughs> Yeah, Al Alzheimer's prevention uh, geekery right here. But yeah, I was uh, with with uh, Mia Kivipelto, and she put me through the machine. That's uh, I saw those pictures. That's that's I gotta get I gotta get over there. Um, I have not had my brain scan yet, but I'm I'm on the I'm on the waiting list. We have a long waiting list in the clinic and the research program, so I've, I'm on the I'm on the list. But I'll have it done soon. Amazing. One thing that I love about you, and one of the reasons why you you know why you've become my my mentor in this space, is that unlike a lot of people who have sort of uh, ridden the wave of interest in Alzheimer's prevention and have written um, books about it, you. You really are kind of focused on the research and you, you know, you, you, uh, you're not making one size fits all claims about how people, um, can minimize their risk. I mean, you take this precision, uh, approach, you look at all, you know, sorts of different biomarkers ranging from lipids to metabolism. And for every patient, patient, you essentially make a different pro like lifestyle protocol, which I think is, which I think is super important. What I've tried to do um, over the last seven years now, um, and it's flown by, wow, um, I, I really wanted to, um, just to be frank, definitively prove, um, I felt like it's my responsibility to, um, if I'm going to make a claim and if I'm going to be excited about and if I'm going to try to promote the field of Alzheimer's prevention, because I really believe in it. I mean, I, I'm, I absolutely believe that you can prevent Alzheimer's in a subset of patients, whether it's one out of three or 50%, whatever, and we can quote different studies. Um, but I, I absolutely believe it. But believing it um, doesn't mean that it's true and doesn't mean that other people will believe it just because you do. And I was speaking to the editor of a, of a very major um, journal and um, he gave me this, um, you know, advice. He said, "Richard, listen. If if someone tells me that, wow, you can stick a deep brain stimulator in the brain, and and I did this to a patient, and they got bet, they they were cured of Alzheimer's. Okay, well, that's great. That's really exciting. 
but prove it. And if you prove it in a rigorous study, in a rigorous scientific environment, um, that's what's going to move the needle. That's what's going to have the most um, you know, global transformative impact on, on public health and wellness. And, and um, the, the disconnect between feeling something and then writing about something in a book or whatever else, and then actually going through the steps and I mean, it is it is very challenging to go through these steps. So um, I don't know if I would wish this whole process on my worst enemy because I've been getting slogged and bruised and uphill both ways in the snow or whatever way it is. But um, yeah, in in 2013. You know, so I wrote a book um, back in 2010, and the title of the book, and I'm not trying to plug it really, because um, most of the information we give about Alzheimer's prevention is all available for free online. I'll share that website. But um, there's a book. It was called Alzheimer's Treatment, Alzheimer's Prevention: A Patient and Family Guide, and it was basically um, I was clogging the printer at my at my clinic because hmm. I was giving these patients, you know, these targeted individualized plans, like you mentioned, and literally it, it got more expensive um, to replace the printer cartridge than it would be to like print like books. I went to Kinko's and like printed some stuff and bound it. And it was just like, I was clogging the printer. So I literally went to some website and, and printed it off a book and it was cheaper that way. So uh, what I'm saying is I, I put together this, this guide for my patients and then it was a book and man, the criticism I got because I used the words Alzheimer's and prevention and I put it on the title of a book. And then I talked about it and was excited about it. I got just like, Oh, lumps and brumps and bruises. <laughs> so I made a decision at that time to, um, you know, say, okay, I'm going to go and prove this in as best of a way that I can. Um, I interviewed all over the country, from Harvard to the Midwest to um, uh, to New York Presbyterian and Weill Cornell Medicine, and and um, uh, this was the only place in New York City where I was allowed to, literally, by the dean of the medical school, um, after some grilling, I would say considerable grilling, to not just start a clinic where I can treat patients um, in, for the goal of reducing risk and preventing Alzheimer's, but to start really. Um, what was at the time the first rigorous um, scientific research program to evaluate the effectiveness of, of these of these things that we talk about for risk reduction. So over the last seven years, um, I've really made it um, a, uh, a mission of, of mine and, and ours to to try to prove as, as best as we can. And to do that, it's it's been very difficult, um, you know, to getting the research approvals, to getting the funding, to getting the brain imaging money. I mean, this stuff, you know, this is millions and millions of dollars, and it was very difficult, and there's been a lot of critiques. But through this time, um, you know, we've, you know, recently published um, what I believe is my by far most important contribution to science. Um, and we can talk about the, some of the results in a little bit, but we recently published uh, the study, uh, Individualized Clinical Management of people at risk for Alzheimer's disease, dementia. And in this paper, um, not only did we kind of um, try to put together for the first time a, um, a plan about how to treat patients, but we actually um, present the results um, from following these patients in a very, very, very highly rigorous way um, from a baseline, meaning when they first came in, to 18 months later. And uh, the results are, um, I believe, um, really impactful. Um, and and um, the, the key here is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to Alzheimer's. Um, people have heard the the statement, um, once you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's. And, <laughs> you know, um, there's also things that are not Alzheimer's. There's dementias from a different different variety of types. So um, what we've tried to do is use um, individualized care. Um, some would call it, um, I used to call it clinical precision medicine, and I still believe that term is correct, but a lot of people don't really understand that. So maybe individualized clinical care, individualized multi-domain interventions. 
whatever it is, um, Mr. Smith gets one set of recommendations. Mrs. Jones, she's different, different, different sex, different genes, different risk factors, different life course things, different medical conditions. She's going to get a whole slew of different things. So um, our, our approaches uh, have, have really now rigorously studied um, this individualized approach. So let's talk about the, the approach and then let's talk about your new study, which I'm excited to get into. Sure. So, um, so the approach um, to what we do um, um, when it comes to rigorous scientific research, um, it's important that anything that a, a, a researcher does is um, published or, or presented in a way where the methods uh, to that approach is um, is out there for the whole world uh, to see. So what we did um, several times um, in the past is we've written now several papers um, about how we approach Alzheimer's prevention for real-life patients um, that come to a clinic. And then that's the patients that have come to our Alzheimer's prevention clinic. And what we've done is we've published several papers. I'll um, I guess I'll just kind of give a, a, some some of the references. I'm not going to go too deep, but if uh, if people want to um, get any of these references, maybe I can just give a give a link and um, and they can go to the website if that's if that's okay. Um, the website that I, I mentioned before that's completely free. There's six courses um, that everything a person needs to learn about Alzheimer's disease. And Max, you've been uh, you're, you're one of our uh, you're one of the team members that have helped us put this website together. Uh, the website's called Alzheimer's Universe. Um, it's a shameless plug, but again, it's totally free. Um, and the website is called alzu.org. Alzheimer's Universe alzu.org. And on this site, there are six courses, courses for high school students, college students, medical students, uh, neurology trainees, um, courses for doctors um, that they can actually get credit. Um, CME credit is what it's called. And most most of the people that have been on the site, over 1.5 million people have been on the site, um, have taken the prevention course, um, which is 12 lessons, almost uh, just over two and a half hours of education about Alzheimer's prevention. It's, it's a really well done site. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, there's a, a site that if people want to take a deeper dive onto the science, we've, we've uh, listed several, several of our key publications. So that uh, link is alzu.org backslash HCP, like healthcare providers, and then backslash publications. So um, two of our papers on there um, are pretty high yield. Um, one was called Mechanisms of Risk Reduction in the Clinical Practice of Alzheimer's Disease Prevention. And in that paper, um, in the uh, journal Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience, we put together what is the basic science approach, like what are the scientific underpinnings of all the things that we recommend in the clinic um, why the heck do we do that? What is the scientific background for that? What are the studies? What are we targeting? Are we targeting amyloid? Are we targeting glucose hypermetabolism? Are we targeting, um, you know, why are we doing exercise? Why are we recommending antioxidants? So we went through really a, a very rigorous basic science um, approach, um, and um, it's it was an important paper for us. And that, that paper was spearheaded by a guy named Peter Atia, who's um, one of my, um, he's also a friend, he's become a friend, he's also a mentor of mine, I've learned a ton from him. Um, we, we call that um, colloquially the Atia paper, because um, that really was, was spearheaded by him and his team. Um, we've also written a paper called The Clinical Application of APOE, uh, that's a gene we'll talk about more, um, in Alzheimer's Prevention, a Precision Medicine Approach. Um, that really underscores how we approach patients if you have the APOE4 gene versus if you don't have the APOE4 gene. That was published uh, in October 2018 in the Journal of the Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease. And then the, the main methods paper or the instruction manual about how the heck we do what we do 
Um, that was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia in November 2018 uh, called The Clinical Practice of Risk Reduction for Alzheimer's Disease, a Precision Medicine Approach. So before we can do a study, before we can do a research study, it took years, literally years, to publish our methods. Um, our first methods paper was published in 2015. We then refined the methods and, and expanded on it. And uh, this was all published in you know major, major, um, very rigorous challenging uh, <laughs> journals with peer reviewers that, um, oh my, like love to eviscerate me in all sorts of mean, nasty ways, but you got to do it for the good of science. But um, the peer review process, um, the journal we submitted to the Alzheimer's and Dementia, the journal of the Alzheimer's Association, um, you know, I say that in jest in a little bit, but the, the peer reviewers really, um, really tear apart everything you say and make sure that you really have a leg to stand on. And um, the peer review process, just to be frank and honest, has is, is been um, absolutely necessary and, and essential, and it's really made our work better. So um, we've published all these papers, and I, I'm sorry to go into too much detail, and maybe it's too much detail, but if someone really wants to um, prove that something they are doing in the clinic is working, it takes a long time to do that. So while the book came out in 2010 and I got tomatoes thrown at me for literally years, um, I then had to like literally get a new job in a new city in 2013 <laughs> and then publish papers from 2015 to 2018. That's like you know, three years of publications. And then finally, uh, on October 30th, uh, 2019 is when, uh, the results paper came out, um, you know, for a study that was planned on my couch in Miami, um, back in 2012 and based on, you know, an idea we had in, in, you know, in 2009, 2010. So to truly prove something, um, it takes lots of steps and, and this whole process took a decade, um, from stem to stern. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, for those not familiar with the peer review process, you have to submit your manuscript, which can take years to write, which then goes to the editor, gets scrutinized by the editor. And then if it's not dead on arrival there, it enters the gauntlet of review with multiple reviewers and notes and feedback and rounds. I mean, is that a pretty good summation? Oh, yeah. And they go in, they go in deep detail. If you don't literally list everything, I mean, I, we really tried. Like, we even had, like, I had 10 people of my 10 of my colleagues review the first the review the re results paper um, before we actually submitted it and then it took us three months to address all the comments of my 10 colleagues wow. um, and then we submitted it and literally we got pages and pages back I I'm, I'm really indebted I, I was kind of well except for reviewer number four I don't know who reviewer number four is but if you're out there listening <laughs> you're killing me like I have gray hairs now because of you but but no the goal of the peer review process is to um, you know really make sure that what we're saying is accurate um, and then the editorial board has to review it it's a whole thing um, and you know before we can even do any research you have to get um, you know research approvals are called IRB or institutional review board approvals and you know sometimes the devil is in the details here. There are, um, you know, you can um, do a study um, in one way, but you can do a study in a much different way. The papers, the research papers may look alike um, in a lot of ways, but, you know, the scientific rigor is, is really important. And, you know, our study was IRB approved, which is a research approval, um, meaning there's ethics involved and people have to sign consents. Our study is on clinicaltrials.gov, which is, you know, the official clearinghouse for, you know, clinical trials in, in our country. Um, our study um, makes all of the data available. Um, for sharing. Um, there's not, no, nothing to hide. Everything's free and available. Um, all of our methods, all of our um, questionnaires, all of our patient data, we take the patient data off, we put it in a repository, and then after the study is published, um, other researchers can actually access the data and, and then do more studies on it. That's great. I mean, the sharing of data is also a really 
important part of this approach too. Yeah, and it's a lot different than than you know writing a book and just saying that everybody needs to be on a low carb diet to prevent Alzheimer's disease, pretty much, right. which I think is common in the. In the space a little bit. I mean, books are getting better, but certainly when Alzheimer's, the notion that our risks could be modulated via a number of modifiable risk factors, I think a lot of people just sort of ran with it and um, made these sort of sweeping um, recommendations. But I really appreciate that you guys look into the, the nutrigenomics of everything. You look at the, a patient's genes. What do you think about, so let's talk a little bit about, about um, APOE4, which is obviously the most well-defined risk factor, genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Does that change the way you uh, treat a patient and the recommendations uh, that you make? Yeah, so I used to like shy away from this topic because I just like didn't want to talk about it. And I was like, I don't want to say scared of it, but I was like, um, I don't know, just felt uncertain or unclear. Um, now it's the exact opposite. Um, and, and you know, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, get their genetics che- checked on, you know, whatever a commercial site or 23andMe or whatever, and they find out they have a, the APOE4 gene and they get, um, you know, very scared and worried. But to be honest, if someone has an APOE4 gene and they come to me, um, uh, this is going to sound confusing, but I'm actually, I'm okay with that. I'm actually, I don't want to use the word excited, but like, I'm like, okay, I got this. I know what I'm up against. <laughs> if you have an APOE4 gene, I know how to manage you. Uh, if you have one copy, I got you. If you have two copies, eh, a little harder, but I, I can I can do this. It's the people that don't have the APOE4 gene, because there are literally dozens of genes that increase a person's risk for Alzheimer's. Um, none of, you know, apoe does not mean if you have this gene, you're going to get the disease. So let me take a step back, explain what APOE is, and then explain what we do about it. So um, everyone, every person gets an APOE gene from their mom and from their dad. And APOE comes in different forms, um, APOE2. APOE3 and APOE4. So people will either be a, you know, a 3-3, which is the most common, and that's really neutral risk. Um, some people may be a 2-3, and 2-3, the 2, APOE2, is a protective factor. Um, but this APOE4, some people can be an APOE3 and an APOE4 together, a 3-4. And a 4 does increase your risk of Alzheimer's somewhat. And some people rarely, you know, about 1% of the population and actually about 10% in our cohort um, have two copies of the four gene just because we're overrepresented because people have four fours and they call the clinic and want to come in. But four fours just means that you um, are, you know, I would say at a higher risk, but it does not mean definitively in any way, shape or form that a person's going to get Alzheimer's disease. Um, it increases risk, but it's not a deterministic gene. However, again, there's multiple dozens of other genes out there. And if someone has a four, that's like, okay. Um, four means that a person um, not just may have an increased Alzheimer's risk or probably also has high cholesterol. And high cholesterol is is, a, is something that fast forwards uh, a person on the path to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Um, so if someone has a four gene, we want to be even more careful about their uh, cholesterol control. And it's a merely a, maybe a, someone may be on the cholesterol road or the APOE road to Alzheimer's. We have to get them off of that road. So we're going to try to lower their cholesterol and manage it in a very specific way. Um, the other aspect is, you know, for example, physical activity. Um, physical activity in people that have the APOE4 gene is so important. I can't even, um, I would just like, if, when my patients with an APOE4 come to see me and just are not exercising minimum four or five times a week, um, I kind of am like, why, why are you seeing me? You come to me to like, 
give you help. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, the most important thing you can do, whether you have an ApoE4 gene or not, exercise is by far, on a regular basis, uh, the best thing a person can do to protect against Alzheimer's, reduce risk, delay, whatever words you want to use. If someone has an ApoE4 gene, you want to like negate that risk, you want to neutralize the negative impact of that gene, it's possible. It's totally doable, and physical exercise is literally like the by far the most powerful antidote to ApoE for um, that I know of. Um, you know, people that smoke, for example, has a much much more profound effect on people um, with the ApoE4 gene. Um, alcohol use, um, you know, also there's some interaction between the ApoE4 gene and alcohol use. Um, so, so the take-home point here is that whether you talk about diet, whether you talk about you know omega-3 fatty acids, whether you talk about all sorts of a variety of components of um, risk reduction techniques, using the ApoE4 gene to um, you know stratify different recommendations. You know, for example, I, I believe, and it's um, I, w- I wouldn't say it's 100% proven, but I would say that um, people that have the ApoE4 gene, so ApoE4 carriers or people who are positive for that gene, probably preferentially respond to omega-3 fatty acids. And I'm, I'm sure you've talked a lot about this, Max, on, on the podcast, but um, ApoE4 E4 positive patients should probably make sure that they're eating enough omega-3s in the diet from fatty fish like wild salmon and lake trout and mackerel and herring and um, you know sardines for example very very fatty fish that are high in omega-3s but some people may need to take a supplement and actually a lot of my patients need to take a supplement um, of DHA um, docosohecanoic acid, I hope I pronounced that right, and uh, EPA, icopentanoic acid. You're going to have to correct my pronunciation <laughs> there, bud. But um, So DHA and EPA would be the very specific things that may be preferentially effective in people that have the ApoE4 uh, gene. You know, Another vitamin or supplement to talk about is vitamin D. Um, as an example, vitamin D is a little confusing when it comes to Alzheimer's and risk, but um, I believe that based on um, a, a prior study and, uh, and and maybe some other research that people with two copies of the ApoE4 gene probably also preferentially benefit from vitamin D supplementation, um, and it's uh, it's something that we really uh, focus on pretty 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 carefully. So I guess overall, when it comes to having the ApoE gene. Um, there are different things that people can do um, to negate that negative impact, and I would say f- even you know neutralize it a fair amount, even almost completely. And that's a, that's a pretty you know heavy statement to say, but I, I honestly I truly believe that that um, people with the ApoE4 gene have a lifestyle related. Um, path to Alzheimer's disease. And, um, you know, the, the other part about ApoE is confusing, but, you know, men with the ApoE4 gene just aren't as affected as women with the ApoE4 gene. Also, age, um, when you have age plus the ApoE4 gene, the combination um, is um, also problematic. So, for example, women who are 65 and over who have an ApoE4 gene, I'm going to be way more worried about that woman than a 50-year-old man with a copy of the ApoE4 gene. I just kind of don't care as much. Um, and also, you know, um, African-American versus Caucasian-American. African-American, you know, it, with, with the ApoE4 gene, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's not as impactful um, in certain studies. So the take-home point here is ApoE um, is a risk gene. It's not deterministic. And different lifestyle changes should be tailored uh, based on a person's genetics. It makes a lot of sense. And the ApoE4 um, 
allele is not the only i mean there it's it's as i mentioned earlier it's it's perhaps the most well-defined genetic risk factor but there are other genes that a person could have that could be functioning to negate what the you know the negative effects of the apoe4 for example i mean in in african americans maybe they have you know certain genes that have yet to be described that are working in opposition to the apoe4 um so it's it's definitely like a you know, this is an area where I think the science needs to continue to evolve. Yep, totally, totally agree with you. And, and you know, research is just coming out more and more, and we're going to really be able to, to get into the, you know, really you know, nooks and crannies of precision medicine and personalized care uh, sooner than later. Um, and, you know, something you alluded to, Max, is that this the concept of polygenic risk. So, you know, polygenic means multiple genes and, you know, the interaction with the different genes. So some people may have a APOE4 gene, for example, but if they also have an APOE2 gene, that's a protective gene. So you don't have to worry as much about four. You have to worry a little, uh, but don't have to worry um, too much. Or as much. So um, uh, one day we're going to crack the code and, and really get super duper granular with all of these different things. Um, and um, those those days are, are not too too far ahead. So what is the the latest study that has just been published by your clinic? I'm super excited to uh, to learn more about that. Yeah, so um, a lot of heavy lifting. And Max, congratulations. You were patient number 14 in the study. <laughs> I love it. Super cool, um, very very cool. Um, there were um, 174 patients um, in in the study, aged 80. Uh, sorry, aged 25 to 86. I think at the time, actually, I know at the time you were the um, youngest patient in the in the study. Congrats! Um, but then the years go by and younger people come in. So um, definitely had a 25 year old. We had a couple of people in their 20s, um, and then you know several people, of course, in their 30s, and then of course all people throughout all their decades. So we enrolled um, 174 people um, in the, and this is patients that came to the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic um, looking for risk reduction care. So um, most of these patients came with no symptoms whatsoever, but some of the people came in with some mild symptoms of, of memory loss. And um, we divided the patients um, into two groups. Um, one group was called prevention, and prevention, again, included people with normal cognitive function um, or people with maybe some subjective, very, very minimal um, cognitive uh, complaints. And and also included people that we characterize as having preclinical or pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's. And what that means is that Alzheimer's has started in their brain, but they have no symptoms yet. So that's uh, it's stage one, preclinical, pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's. And believe it or not, there are 46 million Americans, based on calculations, that have Alzheimer's in their brain right now but no symptoms. Um, and that's, wow. that's a staggering number. So the main group of our patients, uh, the 119 of the, of the patients were uh, the prevention uh, uh, variety. The other group um, was, um, <coughs> excuse me, the other group was what we call the early treatment group. And the early treatment group um, included a, a diagnosis um, that some of you may have heard of, and that's called mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease, or MCI, and MCI is the stage two, the next stage after preclinical Alzheimer's. And mild cognitive impairment means that the person has um, mild um, um, issues with their memory, but not severe enough to impact their activities of daily living. So they could still take care of themselves. Um, they don't really then, by definition, have dementia. Um, people that have cognitive decline that's severe enough to interfere with their activities of daily living and they need help at home um, or with their daily tasks, that's really stage three 
Alzheimer's disease dementia. So in our study, we focused on stage one, um, either mild um, uh, symptoms that, you know, were pre-Alzheimer's, that would be stage two. Um, and that's it. We didn't we didn't um, enroll patients with dementia into this study. So that's that's one of the important aspects. And part of the study also really for the first time, I believe, um, a lot of the feedback about the study was like, wow, you you guys actually looked at primary prevention. Like we've never had a study that's looked at people, you know, before Alzheimer's has started in their brain and when people had no symptoms, that's that's called primary prevention because before the disease starts or before someone has a heart attack, for example, that's called primary prevention of heart disease or primary prevention of Alzheimer's. Um, our study, I, I believe, really was the first to to do an intervention in people um, kind of like you that had no symptoms and you know no no Alzheimer's in the brain. So um, it was a really exciting study because we um, looked at these um, very um, novel groups at a much younger age. We then um, gave each of these patients, <coughs> excuse me, we then gave each of these patients um, uh, individually tailored interventions. So we gave them education, so online education at ALZU.org, and we gave them pharmacologic recommendations or, or drugs, vitamins, supplements uh, when needed, as well as non-pharmacologic recommendations. Um, on average, people got 21 uh, different recommendations. Patients were also then rated on compliance. So instead of like when you give people a drug and you give someone a specific dose of a drug, we rec- we basically gave recommendations, and if people followed greater than sixty percent of the twenty one on average recommendations we gave them, that was the high compliance or high dose group. And then if people followed less, they were the low compliance or low dose group. Um, and that's how we um, uh, situated the study. And then we compared these um, patients um, because this is a clinic, and everyone got an intervention. Instead of having a, a, a traditional control group like like a randomized control trial, will have we did something pretty novel and innovative where we use um, age matched and um, cognitive uh, function matched uh, historical control cohorts. So I'm trying not to be complicated here, but what that basically means is we compared our patients to other patients that were very similar to them in two major uh, other studies. So one study included 32,000 people. The other study um, uh, included 3,200 people that took the same cognitive tests over 18 months but didn't get any interventions. Hmm. So um, we con- we basically um, used this as a comparison cohort. So everyone that came into the clinic got care. They got 21 different interventions. They were then classified in the different groups, prevention versus early treatment. And then um, do they follow lots of recommendations or few? And then how do you do compared to other people your age that took the same test but got no interventions? Does that kind of make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. the, pe- the people in the clinic probably also, I mean, they were motivated and, and you know, highly attuned to what, what was going on with their cognitive function. And... Uh, and so that, you know, I mean, that couldn't be said for the, the comparison cohort, correct? They were just sort of being seen for other, other reasons, or were they brain-related? Um, so they were actually just volunteers um, in two different studies. One study was both all the NIH, or National Institutes of Health, funded Alzheimer's centers in America, um, basically enroll people to try to figure out how people's brains change over time, you know, naturally. It's called a longitudinal study. Hmm. So basically, there were 38,000 people at all the different 
um, Alzheimer's centers throughout the, the country that just came back every year or so to take these cognitive tests, but they weren't doing anything differently. They weren't, oh, your cognitive tests are bad, so do this, or your cholesterol is bad, do that. They didn't have any of that. It's just taking cognitive tests on a regular basis just so that that study could learn about how brains change over time. The other study with 3,200 people that study only included people above the age of 50, so the comparison groups were different. Um, that's at, at Rush, so the Rush Memory and Aging Project. You may have heard of the Nun Study or the you know, Rush University Medical Center. Um, they had 3,200 patients above the age of 50 that, again, took the same test. So we compared um, our group to that group, but that group didn't do anything or get any feedback. Um, our, our group got feedback got an intervention, a personalized intervention. Their group just came back and kind of donated their time to science, uh, which was super helpful because if they didn't do those, you know, 30-something thousand people didn't do that, uh, we wouldn't be able to do our research. Wow. So then what So then, what were, what were you seeing with the people who were on the high dose versus the low dose? Yeah. So this, um, there's a couple of things that we saw, and I would say several things. Um, and what we saw, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to, um, I guess, paraphrase, but um, we found something pretty interesting that in the prevention group, so for example, in people like you who are young, generally healthy, um, you know, some people were older than you and had some mild glitches, but you know, it wasn't Alzheimer's or pre-Alzheimer's, anything like that. Um, the people that were in the prevention group um, who followed greater than 60% of the recommendations or actually followed less than 60%. So even people that followed 30, 40, or 50% of the recommendations, um, when those groups were looked at separately, both of those groups actually had um, more optimized or improved cognitive function at 18 months after their first visit. Um, and it really um, didn't, I would say, matter as much if you followed every single thing, like the high, high, high motivated people, um, or even if people followed a, a lesser degree of, of the recommendations, both groups um, were actually able to respond. Responding mean optimize or improve their cognition um, in a, you know, a statistically significant way when we compared those exact groups to the, the comparison uh, control groups. So that was very interesting because I, I guess my hypothesis was that you know, people, you had to do a lot in order to improve the brain. And, and I'm not saying that 30, 40, or 50% is not a lot, but I actually, I guess, my guess before the, te before the study started was that only the higher compliance prevention group would improve. But we were really um, interested and intrigued um, that even a lower, a lesser degree of compliance um, still was, was enough to move the needle. Maybe not as well, uh, but it still moved the needle. When it comes to early treatment, um, this was also a really interesting result. And I also, before the study, wasn't really confident that people with mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease, honestly, I, I honestly did not think they were going to improve. I, I thought our study would show that the earlier you intervene and it, you have to have no symptoms in order to respond in a statistically significant way. Um, well, um, this is great because I was wrong. Um, now, this group was a much smaller group. So let's talk about limitations. This group only included 35 uh, people. So again, this is not a perfect study. Uh, sure, we would have loved to include more, but um, this is you know challenging to do research like this. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll just I'll just say the least. Um, but um, overall, in the early treatment group, the higher compliance people, the the people with MCI due to Alzheimer's, that basically 
should decline. I mean, Alzheimer's is a progressive neurodegenerative disease. They should decline. But those people that followed greater than 60% of the recommendations actually um, improved their cognitive function um, greater than both historical cohorts, the comparisons, and also they were improved compared to their own baseline 18 months prior. So that's pretty um, like that's like a headline there because um, when you think about people with MCI you expect them to decline people that really grabbed the bull by the horns and did all the stuff we told them had better cognition 18 months later than at their baseline um, that just to be frank, really surprised me. The lower compliance group in the early treatment uh, category, um, they did not um, they did not differ from the controls. They actually just continued to decline, uh, kind of like we expected. So to me, in some ways, the strongest um, results of the study was that um, these individualized interventions actually work um, for people with symptoms. So it's not too late, but if you have symptoms, you really got to you know get your act together and, and, and do a lot. When it comes to the earlier group, the younger group, less affected, um, even a lesser degree of, of compliance was um, enough to show some degree of benefit. Um, so when you look at cognitive function, we were able to optimize cognitive function. And, and that's not something I was taught in medical school. I was never taught you know, hey, um, yes, you can increase your muscle size and you can, you know, um, you know, make your, um, you know, um, muscles bigger. But no, you can't you can't make your brain bigger or make your brain function better. Um, like that doesn't happen. That's what <laughs> I was taught in medical school. That was all wrong. And now we have some evidence to actually support that. I think the other important finding of the study is that we didn't just look at cognitive function. We looked at um, risk scores and risk scales. So um, someone can put their data like their cholesterol and you know their lifestyle activities into these risk calculators. So what we actually showed in the secondary analyses was that Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular risk using these calculated risk scales also improved and they, that those results were statistically significant. And, and the thing, if you look at the data, kind of you take a step back I kind of take I'm going to take my maybe neurologist hat off and if I had to say okay if I wasn't involved in this study and I looked at it what would be the most impressive finding so um, if, when it comes to the risk scales um, the impact that we had on reducing cardiovascular risk was like legit off the top uh, sorry like legit over the top like I like I kind of can't even believe it um, you know we are helping people's brains and that's great that was the intended um uh you know that was what we tried to set out to do but i actually the collateral of improving heart health um was actually probably more impressive than um you know there actually was more impressive than the reductions in alzheimer's risk which which we did re reduce but we um, really even had more stronger effects on on heart health so um overall you know, our, our conclusion um, that we wrote in the, in the paper was that um, individualized multi-domain interventions may improve cognition and reduce Alzheimer's and, and calculated um, cardiovascular risk scores in patients at risk for Alzheimer's disease dementia. And Max, you, you were part of this study, and I, I appreciate it because we would, couldn't have done it without you. And um, I uh, would love to hear what you think about it because this is the first time you're hearing about the results too. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's um, I was so impressed by what you guys were doing. It's one of the reasons why I've I've tried to really study what it is that you're doing and to 
just understand science through your vantage point because I think what you've achieved is so remarkable, you know? And I've been in this in this space now for, I don't know, the past eight years or so, if not longer. And um, I would say that you're you're definitely the go-to guy in this and somebody who's who's really making the most important contributions to the field. You're pushing the field forward. So for that, I applaud you. I have just one quick question and I don't know if this is a like a this might be a controversial idea or maybe just sort of one of semantics but like could you with those patients with mild cognitive impairment that improved compared to their 18 month prior baseline I mean can you use a word like remission like can you can you can you lift somebody out of MCI to the point where they no longer have MCI that's something that that you know I have no idea about but I would love to get your thoughts Oh well, that's you really understand this topic because this is a this is I mean that's the seminal question, right? Um, so we are trying to prevent someone from converting from mild cognitive impairment to dementia, and you know your question is really important. Were were we able to um, uh, kind of go back in time or or lift or you know I don't I don't I hate the this R word so I'm I'm not even going to say it okay I'll say it for a second but could is it possible to reverse you know, right can we reverse mild cognitive impairment and go backwards um so so I don't use the term reverse I'm very cautious and I would never use the term reverse unless I had definitive evidence of brain pathology before and after so in our study um, we did um, imaging you know so those people with MCI had amyloid in the brain but we didn't do imaging at baseline and then again at 18 months and look at did the amyloid you know um like go go like disappear like is there less amyloid is there better glucose metabolism um we did not have enough funding to do the Rolls-Royce study as in an ideal world we would have liked to do. If I had another like million bucks, two million bucks, I, I could have done that But and, and definitively proven are we you know, impacting the pathology. So until we have that definitive evidence, um, I, <clears throat> I guess what I would say is I, I wouldn't use the term reverse at all. And I would say are we putting them in a remission? Um, I think everyone's a little bit individual, and um, we would have to go back and look at the data a little bit, <coughs> a little bit more clearly to answer this question. But what I would say is the following: um, one of the patients, uh, I'll just give a quick story. Um, you know, one of those uh, patients um, that actually um, that's that's uh, talked about her experiences in the Wall Street Journal piece. You know, she clearly came in um, with memory trouble. I mean, I, I remember meeting her at a lecture I was giving, um, in, in the community and, you know, she, I remember, I like literally remember it like a video in my mind and, and she, she came up and she said, Dr. Isaacson, please, I, I, can you help me? I don't know what's happening. Um, I, um, I, I got out of the train the other day. I've taken the subway for decades and I got up on the corner and I like didn't know where to go. Like I, I literally, I didn't know where I got lost. I, I, I didn't know if I should go left, right, which Southwest corner, Northwest corner. Like she literally had visual spatial problems as well as some memory glitches. And I'm mean, like the sweetest woman on earth, like so, so sweet, like so, you know, she was really concerned. We, she comes into the program, she gets, you know, and I, I don't love sharing N of one stories, but, but I can tell you this person shared her story, you know, in, in the press. I mean, she, she got better. Like she literally like, like her 
she didn't get lost anymore and she you know her her memory like got better like it's pretty crazy now that's great um and those stories are really rewarding and you know she is now you know posting on instagram and doing like all this amazing stuff i don't even post on instagram i'm bad i can't even figure out social media and she's got like you know 20,000 followers or whatever so you know there are story after story after story of people that you know do this plan and get better. Um, but I um, am very cautious to say anything definitive about are we really, um, you know, is she in remission? You know, because like other patients, you know, we're going to keep following. This study was at 18 months, but we need to follow patients for three years, five years, 10 years or more um, to truly know, um, you know, if, if we're changing the tra- trajectory of the disease. I, I really believe we are. Um, but um, I, I think some people also will respond more vigorously than others. Um, you know, we haven't looked at these data yet, but um, I think my gut tells me that, um, for example, people with two copies of the APOE4 gene that we talked about earlier um, also respond but they don't respond as robustly. Initially, it takes them longer to respond. And I have a feeling that while our approach works in people with two copies of the APOE4 gene, um, you know, maybe it works differently. So I think the answer to your question, Max, will depend on the individual person. Um, it depends on you know what genes they have, what lifestyle changes they're doing, if they fall off the wagon, if they continue to maintain. Um, you know, I think if I had to guess, um, based on my last seven years of doing this and the last 10 years of treating Alzheimer's patients and the last 15 years of being an Alzheimer's doctor and just coalesce all of what what, what I've seen and what we've worked on, I think that we can um, maybe delay conversion to dementia in a person with mild cognitive impairment by, um, I would say, up to a few years. Um, I think I feel comfortable saying that, whether it's six months, a year, two years, or three years. Um, I don't know the exact answer, and I think it depends per person. But I, I would say it's uh, delaying conversion to dementia is possible. We just need to prove it better. Um, and when it comes to pre- the prevention group, um, I believe, um, you know, I have patients I'm following now um, for years. Um, and, you know, I think the best patient I saw yesterday uh, evening at an event, um, you know, he is like become like in some ways too militant. Like his whole life revolves around brain health now, um, which isn't a bad thing. I think Max Lugavere, I think maybe you do the same thing. But, um, you know, this guy um, has been coming for like, you know, five years now and he's still on an upward trajectory. Like his cognitive function is still like it's it's starting to plateau in the last six months to year, but like if you can continue to increase plateau for a while and then due to the natural aging process or whatever else you continue to decline, you know he is projected to go back to his baseline cognitive function, um, basically, at um, like I don't know ten to twelve years down the pike. So I think for this guy, um, you know, he's thirty nine. He's doing like everything right, like militant wise, and he probably will delay his cognitive decline and go back to his baseline um, probably ten to twelve years. Um, that's like amazing. So these studies and this study that we published is not exactly designed to be, um, you know, as definitive as I would, I would like, but I think, um, I think I, I feel pretty comfortable with saying that it is possible to delay cognitive decline, um, by several years, um, at least in, in prevention patients and by, um, you know, many months to a few years in mild cognitive impairment patients. And I would have never been able to say that, um, a decade ago, I felt it. 
my, my stomach felt it, my gut or whatever. Um, but I think we're getting closer to be able to prove it. Um, to, to definitively prove it, it would take a $10 million, probably $12 million study. Um, you know, we're trying to get these funds now. It's very challenging. But uh, I would say a solid $10 million study uh, at multiple different sites. We have a six-site study that we're trying to get funded now. Um, and, uh, we just, you know, it's just hard to get funding. Um, and we're looking for funding like in every nook and cranny from philanthropy to foundations to NIH or whatever else. But, um, I think this is definitively provable for 10 ish million dollars, maybe 12, uh, where we could do an 18 month study, repeat it, do brain imaging at, at the baseline. And again, at 18 months and definitively prove whether or not, um, we're truly preventing Alzheimer's disease. That's amazing. Well, hopefully you can find that funding. I mean, I know it's difficult, but uh, it's a worthy cause for sure. Um, but I think what you've shown is that, you know, there are things that we can do today. And I know that you take this precision approach, but um, with all the research that you've done, I mean, you know, you're speaking to, to an audience of highly motivated people. Are there any sort of salient uh, key takeaways that you can um, offer to my audience that they can begin doing um, if they're not already to help bolster their brain health. I mean, when it comes to diet, I know there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all diet, supplement regimen, but I mean, you know, maybe there are some key takeaways that you can offer. Sure. So um, we have, what, two more hours? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'll guess the first thing is um, I'll start with know your numbers. Um, Everyone out there really needs to be an informed consumer. So I, I don't know if it was like Sims or some like, I don't know, old commercial I used to watch growing up. Some guy used to come on at like a clothing store and he would say, um, an informed consumer is my best customer. And I feel the same way about brain health. Um, Know your numbers. Um, Everyone out there needs to know what their blood pressure is, their blood sugar, their cholesterol, their percent body fat. Um, you know, these are things that everyone should know. And some of these are easier to find out. And some of these are harder. You know, anyone can go get their blood pressure checked. Like anyone can ask their doctor to get some labs um, in, a, in, a, in a moderately cost-effective way. Usually insurance covers some of that stuff. Um, anyone can go to a body fat scale and check what that is. Um, if, if someone has no money or no resources um, and you know doesn't want to go to the pharmacy and spend $20 on a blood pressure cuff, um, anyone can just look down and look at their waist size. You know, um, too many times um, people are worried about their genetics, you know, their genes. Um, I think more people need to be worried about the genes that are in their closet um, and the waist size. If, if the belly size is getting larger, um, the memory center in the brain is getting smaller. That's a metabolic problem that impacts memory, and that's a you know fixable thing if we can reduce belly fat, eat a very specific way that's right for them, um, and you know reduce you know the waist size and belly fat. Um, and so so the take home point is just get get to know yourself. Um, you know I sleep with a ring and a bracelet, and I I know everything about how many hours I sleep, my deep sleep, my uh, REM sleep, and none of these devices I would say are perfect, perfect, but they're they're pretty darn good. Um, you know if if, you, if in the grand scheme of things, um, I know what my resting pulse rate is. I know what my heart rate variability is. I know everything about myself as much as I can, um, and I follow these things over time. Um, know your numbers in terms of sleep time. Know your numbers in terms of, you know, uh, all these different parameters to really have the best bang for the buck. Um, you know, when it comes to blood pressure control, just as one, one quick thing, 
a study called the Sprint Mind Study. In 2019, uh, the, the most impactful study that came out all year, hey, aside from the study that we we published, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> so the, 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 literally, probably the best study, honestly, was this randomized study where they looked at following blood pressure. And the blood pressure um, usual target for reduction was 140 over 80. And then they included an additional arm where they lowered blood pressure even more to 120 over 70 as the goal. And in just three and a half years of more aggressive control of blood pressure from the 140 over 80s to the 120 over 70s, in just three and a half years of treatment, they were able to reduce the risk of developing mild cognitive impairment or MCI, which is the earliest phase of Alzheimer's, by 19%. Okay? Reducing risk of early dementia by 19% by just doing one thing and that's just reducing blood pressure by like honestly a little bit so knowing your numbers is really key and when a doctor says eh you're fine oh it's just a little high or, oh you're blo- oh this ah you're probably okay it's probably not okay when it comes to preventative health the kind of the light bulb went on for me when i truly learned the difference between normal values and optimal values and normal ish values may be 140 over 80 even though i actually don't think that's normal anymore <laughs> but in med school i was taught it was um you know 20 years ago um optimal is 120s over 70s and there's optimal cholesterol and optimal body fat and optimal this and that um so so i think knowing your numbers is key um when it comes to you know some other real real important takeaways um exercise like i i just can't i can't say it enough it's by far um what did you i'm going to quote max lugavere um exercise stimulates bdnf which is like a miracle growth for the brain didn't i hear you say that once <laughs> yeah i've I prob- I probably said that a bunch of times but okay. yes okay. I, I do steal your um quotes I, I i also stole your quote um everyone with a brain is at risk for alzheimer or something like that i've definitely <laughs> stolen that um i've stolen lots of quotes so i appreciate that i'm shamelessly <laughs> stealing them um anyway um <laughs> exercise like you just can't get enough of it um uh, a healthy diet um confusing um you know i believe in a modified mediterranean style um with you know less uh you know whole grains to me one or two servings a day i'm okay with that um that's you know we can debate that um until the cows come home but um you know less is more when it comes to bad carbs and just i also think general our population just way overdoes it on carbohydrates um so green leafy vegetables is good you know certain fruits berries you know blue green uh green the greens green leafy vegetables and um you know the blueberries and the, and the strawberries super important but you know just just like everyone like people eat way too many carbs and i know you you believe in this um also intermittent fasting or time restricted eating um is is really important um i I really believe in 12 to 14 really to 16 hour fast i skip breakfast uh basically four or five days a week at a minimum (laughs) um so i guess what i would say is there's lots of different dietary ways um but whatever you choose whatever works for you um is key um and sleep uh, just like cannot underscore the importance of sleep um having a plan for sleep you've taught me about the blue blocker glasses um you know getting rid of the blue light um you know not not 
using you know electronics uh, 30 to 45 minutes before bed just like disconnecting i don't even keep my phone in my bedroom anymore because of this i actually bought an old school alarm clock um you know i, I use a white noise machine which helps me because i've like tracked that if i use a white noise machine and put my air conditioning lower um uh my better half um wants to slap me several times because <laughs> I, I i lower the uh the um the bed uh, the the temperature in the room to like 65 degrees and she like slaps me um but long story short i sleep better when it's cold i get better deep sleep i sleep better with a noise machine i sleep better when i don't have the phone in the room um and i also sleep better when i track it um mindfulness based stress reduction um meditation um stress is just so bad for the body um it, it's hard to lose body fat when people are stressed out it's bad for the brain it promotes brain aging um you know i can go on and on and on there's just you know so many different things that i could talk about but um uh, you know, when in doubt, if you want to learn more, um, go to that free site, um, alzu.org, um, and you can actually take classes on this. And um, uh, if you finish all 12 lessons on alzu.org, you're gonna, people are going to get free advanced exercise content instructed by the man, the myth, the legend, Max Lukavir. <laughs> I remember filming those with you. It's so it's so it was so cool to be a part of that project and to continue to to consult with you on it. It's um I think it's so valuable. And whenever people ask me, whenever I have an opportunity to uh, funnel funds into charity, I always funnel it into that website, which is a nonprofit. So anybody who wants to donate uh, to alzu.org can head over there, and um, you make it really easy for people to uh, to contribute. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, on ALZU.org, there is a donate button. Um, so that's that works. Um, if someone is looking to um, kind of donate more significant funds, um, what I would say is it may be um, better to try to just contact me directly. My email address is, is on there. Um, so, uh, most of the time, um, all those funds do get to us. But, you know, for more significant donations, you know, um, that you have like a focus and you you want to say, Dr. Isaacson, please do this and please do that. Um, and um, really, um, it's just better to contact me, too. Yeah, I love it. Um, well, we are out of time. So uh, thank you, Richard, for being here and for um, providing my listeners with this incredibly valuable information. I love your work, um, as you know, but just so that it's it's out there on the public record. I'm a huge fan of yours, um, and I'm uh, grateful to get to call you a friend. Right on, my man. Pleasure. And uh, hey, thanks for making this work possible. And um, as importantly, um, thanks for taking a really bad situation um, and, uh, you know, taking lemons and making it into lemonade. Uh, you know, your mom was uh, just sweet. I, I'm getting, I don't want to get teary eyed or whatever, but she's just, Kathy was a uh, a, a, a good gal and she's uh, she's really 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 proud of you max that you're spreading the good word and, and trying to help uh, lots and lots of people out there oh well thank you that means a lot um you just get one last question which gets asked to everybody that's on this show it's sort mm -hmm. of like our our thing here and uh <laughs> we all are are wanting to know dr isaacson what does it mean to you to live a genius life Whew. wow that's a tough question. Um, I watched the Michael K show often on Yes. I'm a big Yankee fan. And he, he was asked at the end, uh, if you get stuck in a foxhole, who would you want to be with? And I, I, I've thought about that answer, but I've never thought about this. Um, 
Ooh, what does it mean to me? Um, to live a genius life, um, it's to um, to give back and to have a sense of purpose. I think, you know, um, there's a lot of different things that can lower a person's risk for Alzheimer's disease. And um, giving uh, meaningfully back to society and having a sense of purpose is one of by far the most um important non-pharmacological ways that a person can protect their brain health over time. And, you know, um, I think we only get one, um, well, I hope we don't, but I hope we get multiple runs around the, uh, you know, whatever, and get reincarnated or whatever we believe in. But in case this is my only time on this planet, um, I want to give back and make a difference. And I want to try to move the needle and um, help people and help and reach as many people as possible. So what it means to me to live a genius life is to um, try to um, educate um, the public try to uh, inform doctors um, that um, people can take control of their brain health um, and that um, Alzheimer's prevention, it's real. It's a real thing and it's an important conversation that uh, people in this country um, and people all over the world should, should take seriously. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you again for your time and wisdom to all you guys out there in podcast land. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time and attention. Take a moment to spread the word about what Dr. Isaacson is doing. Check out ALZU.org, and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace.